Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I'm joined as always by my colleague Kelly Vlahos from the Quincy Institute as we try to make sense of the follies of U.S. foreign policy. Today we'll be joined by Dr. Stephanie Savelle, the co-director of the Costs of War Project at Brown University, to talk about U.S. military assistance in Burkina Faso and Niger. But first, let's turn to some of the other important stories out there right now. Last week, the Center for a New American Security, CNAS, ran a Taiwan war game with members of the House Select Committee on China. A hawkish committee and a hawkish think tank got together and concluded that what was needed was lots more weapons for Taiwan in the name of deterrence. Color me shocked. <laughs> According to Politico, CNAS reran the war game that it conducted earlier with Meet the Press, but they compressed it to run for a much shorter amount of time. The members of Congress pretty much knew the answer they were going to get from the exercise before they did it, and they were getting a truncated, accelerated version. The original war game with Meet the Press was, in the words of international relations scholar Van Jackson, as nutty and propagandistic as it sounds. <laughs> Jackson also had this to say about the story in his undiplomatic newsletter, Wargaming is easily manipulated by its designers and by clients who wish for nothing but validation or confirmation bias. That sums up the CNS exercise with the China Committee perfectly. War games like this are a little more than propaganda, in this case, propaganda for throwing more weapons at the problem, which could very well worsen tensions and make conflict more likely. If war prevention is the goal, massive arms buildups could prove disastrous. So, Kelly, what do you make of the war game and the committee's involvement in it? Well, I mean, I do think it's pretty nutty. Um, I had first heard about these war games last week before they happened, and my first response was, wow, so CNAS gets all of this money from the defense industry, uh, gets multiple funding streams from um, the Pentagon in the form of, like, uh, grants, uh, but also from the, the industry itself. And it's going to run a, a, a game on Taiwan. And surprise, surprise, it'll turn out to be something like, oh my goodness, the United States is vulnerable. We have to beef up our military assets in the region as a result. It's almost as though these games are designed uh, to scare members of Congress into loosening the purse strings so they get more money uh, for their pet projects. And I, you know, so I'm not surprised with the results. I just was a little bit taken aback that this select committee on China would be doing a war game. Uh, it it seems almost as though it was a publicity stunt. As you said, CNAS has already run this game once. And so this was kind of a way, I think, for the Congress, uh, the chairman, Mike Gallagher, to put on a little bit of a show and the ad, with the added bonus of um, results that look like they are empirically designed to say, wow, we're on the right track. We have to be we have be, have to be more vigilant about China militarily because um, right now we're not we are woefully unprepared for the fight. <laughs> Right, and and it feeds into the the China committee's uh, threat inflation, the, the fear mongering we've seen from them over the last few months, uh, and and also the the China committee's uh, group think and, and reflexive hawkishness, uh, which have already been uh, identified as serious problems by by a number of observers, not not just and not just people in the restraint camp, but but even uh, fairly hawkish people who are you know, a, a little bit disturbed by just how. Uh, how much group think there is on display in this committee. Um, and then that's a problem because it blinds them to the pitfalls of arming Taiwan to the teeth as they, they want to do. Um, and I think it also shows, uh, I mean, CNAS's involvement shows the extent to which liberal hawks are fully on board for aggressive containment. I mean, we already knew that, but it's, you know, I think it's, it's worth remembering because uh, that, that should 
be kept in mind when we judge the the products uh, that they put out when they, when they offer analysis on things uh, that you know they're clearly gearing up for confrontation and rivalry uh, in in the worst way, and so that's uh, something we have to keep an eye on. Uh, the the other one of the other big stories coming out this month, of course, is a crisis in Sudan. Uh, that crisis continues as competing forces within the Sudanese military are fighting with one another and what could easily spiral into a full-fledged civil war. The head of the military, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan and General Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, known as Hameti, the leader of the Rapid Support Forces, are vying for dominance and the people of Sudan and especially in Khartoum are caught in the middle right now. Uh, the analyst Justin Lynch warned recently that Sudan is facing a state collapse similar to Yemen's. There are outside governments on opposite sides of the conflict, but the UAE aligned with the head of the RSF and Egypt potentially supporting Burhan. Conflict has potentially consumed Sudan and to spread beyond its borders, and even if the fighting is contained within Sudan, the effects won't be. Uh, how should the U.S. respond to this burgeoning conflict here, Kelly? I don't know. It seems as though they really have to get their diplomatic game in gear. Uh, we had a piece by Alex DeWall up at Responsible Statecraft, um, and when he, in which he talked about how, you know, the the dynamics for what is happening today were in place uh, years ago, and things had been getting worse over the last at last twelve months, and and yet there are all of these interested stakeholders, including the United States and the West, who are sort of standing back and not doing anything about it. And you know he called it sort of like a diplomatic traffic jam in which everybody can see it happening, but nobody was taking the um, initiative uh, to, to do anything about it, to, to be the first to step in. And we're talking about not only the U.S. and the West, but Arab countries, Israel, Egypt. Um, there were uh, the African Union, Ethiopia. I mean, they're all everyone has a stake and they're all competing with one another. And it's 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 very sad for the Sudanese people because you know, they had a military coup, you know, a repressive leader was deposed, but now they're being run by a military, which is slow walking the transition process uh, to um, to elections. And in the meantime, that military is broken off into this um, paramilitary group and they're fighting. So we're not talking about, I mean, in, in, in the more simplistic terms that we're used to, like bad guys versus good guys or an autocrat versus a Democrat. We're talking about two uh, military, um, you know, uh, militant leaders who have have been slow walking a democratic transition, fighting with each other over power. So even if one side wins, so to speak, it's still leaving the Sudanese people without um, a democracy or or without a leader that they actually asked for and voted for. And so I, I don't know what the United States does. I have so little faith that United States can um, lead uh, diplomatic efforts uh, with any integrity anymore. I feel like it spent the last 20 years looking for military solutions in, in Africa and sending in the military and counterterrorism programs ahead of its diplomatic core, and now it, those muscles just haven't been used in so long, or at least effectively, that I, I don't really have a lot of confidence that that we can go in there and straighten things out. Um, I mean, some people have said, okay, start freezing assets of the 
of the of the coup leaders and the the, the two sides or the at least the guys that are they're really sparking the violence. I don't know. Does that work? I guess so. It might get some people to the table, but I, I'd be curious to what you think um, needs to be done there. Yeah, I mean, targeted sanctions like that, could, I mean, might be worth doing to to convey displeasure with what these military leaders are doing. But yeah, I mean, they're they're not going to change their calculus. I mean, they're they're fighting for essentially the right to to govern the country. The, the transition process that you mentioned has been hijacked years ago. Uh, it's it's entirely military-led now. The, the illusion that there's any sort of real transition to civilian rule uh, is just that. And, and one thing that I think the U.S. could do is to stop pretending that there is a transition in place, that there, that there is some sort of progress being made to, uh, to civilian rule, and, and to acknowledge the reality of the military rule that's been there. Uh, one thing that I think does need to be done uh, in terms of U.S. interests is that there are roughly 20,000 Americans living in Sudan, many of them dual nationals. Uh, evacuating as many as want to get out uh, should be the priority for the administration up front. Um, and then I think something that they have to be looking at is preparing to provide relief for refugees in neighboring countries because a lot of people are trying to flee the country right now, uh, understandably, to get out of the fighting uh, and all of Sudan's neighbors are ill-equipped to take in any more displaced people than they already have. Uh, of course, many of those countries are also racked by their own conflicts. So that's uh, that's something where I think the U.S. could possibly offer some constructive assistance. Uh, in terms of forcing an end to the fighting through diplomatic pressure, I think I mean maybe the best thing that we could do would be to lean on those clients that we have uh, that have picked different sides to try to bring their their clients into line uh, and then to get them to stop uh, the fighting that's ravaging the country. Uh, but uh, yeah, our, our influence is fairly limited. Um, of course, that's, that's a function of having spent decades not dealing with Sudan. Uh, we isolate these countries, we treat them as pariahs for decades, and then we wonder why we don't have any influence. And so that's, that's a, 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 problem that has a, a sources that go go way back in u.s policy yeah uh, and well, one other thing i would note is as you were saying these are these are two military figures who are fighting with each other and these are the men who overthrew bashir and so right it's a sort of a, a cautionary tale of what can happen when you you depose one bad leader uh and indeed bashir was he's accused of genocide he's, he's a war criminal uh, but these generals are uh, proving that even when you get rid of someone like that, uh, what follows can be just as bad, if not worse. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, you know, just recently or within the last year, Nick Terse has been writing about how our counterterrorism programs throughout Africa, maybe not in Sudan specifically, but in places like Burkina Faso, we've actually trained people who went on to overthrow their government because we, we put so much stock in the military aspect of helping these countries. And we do a lot of military training. Um, so groups that are um, the paramilitary or are the outsiders, the opposition, um, the, the, the counterterrorism uh, forces in these countries, they end up having political squabbles with the leaders and 
use all of that um, know-how and um, you know capability to to over overthrow their own governments. And so, like you know, it just comes back to bite us in the butt. Um, and you know, we and we don't know. And one of the stories that he had done for Responsible Statecraft is we just we don't know how many of these leaders uh, that t- turned out to be coup leaders that we've actually trained. Because they're not, they're not take, they're not keeping close tabs, which is probably lucky for the Pentagon. Because I think it would be a, a real public relations disaster to see that our military training was resulting in, um, in, in fomenting the chaos that we're seeing, particularly in um, the Sahel, for example, places like Mali. You know, um, it's just it, it it can get quite ugly, and it, I just I, you know my heart goes out to the the people in Sudan right now who are sort of caught in the middle of all of that. Our guest today is Stephanie Savell. She's a public anthropologist who researches militarism, security, and civic engagement in relation to the United States post-9-11 wars and policing in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. As co-director of Costs of War, she serves as editor of the project's research papers and executive director of, op- and executive director of operations. She's the author of The Civic Imagination, Making a Difference in American Political Life. Her work has also appeared in The Guardian and Foreign Policy, among other places. Welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Um, one of the things that made me think of uh, asking you back on the show is we've been seeing a lot more news coming out of West Africa lately about uh, the security situation in Burkina Faso and in other countries in the region. Uh, and of course, that's something you've worked on quite extensively. Uh, and you researched the role of U.S. military assistance in contributing to Burkina Faso's militarized approach to counterterrorism. And you concluded that U.S. assistance intensified conflict in the country. Uh, so tell us how that happened. Yeah, sure. Um, I've just recently been um, working on West Africa um, very intensively because I just took a trip to Niger as well in January. Um, I went to the capital Niamey and Agadez, where the U.S. has a drone base up in the desert. What I wrote about in relation to Burkina Faso is um, is basically that the U.S. started counterterrorism assistance in the region right after, in the years right after 9-11. So at the same time that the U.S. invaded Afghanistan and launched what George W. Bush called the global war on terror, the U.S. began a series of um, assistance to the West African region, amongst other regions of the world. Uh, the the idea was preemptive, right? Preemptive strategy, the, um, acting in case there were just it just um, sorry. Uh, I'll re-say this: um, acting to preempt the threat of of terrorism before it arose. Um, at the time, there was U.S. security strategists saw very little actual threat posed to United States security interests from the region. Um, but the U.S. began nonetheless sending money, equipment, training security forces in West Africa. And what happened was by the time militant violence began occurring in the region, the U.S. had already set up a really strong frame of the war on terror is the best way to fight terrorism. And so 
in 2012, Mali was politically destabilized after the fall of Gaddafi in Libya. It borders Libya and a lot of the mercenaries who were, who had worked for Gaddafi looted the weapons arsenals um, in the chaos that followed and began aiding a separatist movement in northern Mali. And that has sent the region spiraling into the political chaos that we've seen uh, that continues today, in part because some of these militant groups with ties to al-Qaeda and ISIS in the Middle East have then kind of taken advantage of the security situation and and started some terror attacks and their own kind of political agendas in the region. Um, so the the region was destabilized. The U.S. had been pouring millions of dollars since about 2004 into the region. 2009 was when it really began assisting. We, we really began assisting Burkina Faso and and pulling Burkina that country into the security partnerships in the region. And then the the region is destabilized, and presto, you know, local governments have been have this framework, have this narrative around the the solution to what it means to have militant attacks, right? And so the local governments carry out their own wars on terror against um, groups that they accuse of being Islamist militants. Well, this is a really convenient framework for um, labeling repressed, you know, repressed groups, um, political opposition, any kind of counter to a more, you know, authoritarian regime. And so what that happens is, what happens is it ends up intensifying the the violence and all of the government repression and military actions against particular groups in the name of a war on terrorism begets a cycle in which people are driven more and more to join these militant groups and this kind of foments the violence. And so this is a real um, intensification of, you know, local dynamics. And this tracks with what we've seen in a lot of other places with, with militarized counterterrorism actually making the, the problem of terrorism worse in a lot of places. Uh, another thing that our assistance to Burkina Faso has done is actually to undermine uh, democracy in that country. You found that U.S. assistance helped prepare the way for the coup that overthrew the elected government in 2022. As you wrote last year in a piece for foreign policy, U.S. assistance wasn't directly responsible for the overthrow, but it, quote, helped lay the groundwork for the country's increased militarism and ultimately the coup it produced. Now we see uh, the U.S. that the Wall Street Journal is reporting that the Biden administration is trying to find ways to continue assisting the junta uh, that has taken over there. Uh, between the rise of the junta and the intensification of conflict, couldn't the U.S. stop and reassess what it's doing in this country and in West Africa more generally? Well, absolutely. You know, the the Biden administration is getting around the Pentagon's um, prohibition on assisting, um, providing security aid to military regimes through State Department security assistance. And it is basically perpetuating more of the same logic and narrative that I was talking about. Ultimately, it's more of the same. It's not taking a step back and saying, look, what we've done hasn't worked. You know, this region is clearly spiraling into more and more violence, more and more conflict. U.S. counterterrorism aid has not helped this situation. So there's there's none of that kind of big questioning. Instead, it's kind of tweaking around the edges and like, what could we do, be doing slightly differently? And what could we doing a little bit better, a little bit more? 
enforcing and reinforcing a militarized approach rather than taking a step back and saying, what are the alternatives? One piece of cost of war research that's not mine, but a, a different paper that we've put out that I think is really useful in thinking about this case is a paper uh, called Alternatives to the War Paradigm. So here it lays out historically um, research that that looks at hundreds of cases worldwide. How have governments addressed the problem of terror attacks as alternatives to militarized force? What are alternatives to the war paradigm? Um, so it goes through <clears throat> at least 10 other options, right? You can treat this as a policing, as a criminal justice problem. We all know that that has its own, entails its own set of, of problems, but that's another way of approaching this, right? Um, there are, um, you can use prevention, mitigation, and above all, you can think of Alternatives like development assistance, conflict resolution assistance, promoting global rights, right? The political and economic empowerment of disenfranchised groups. Um, you can reframe the threat. You can point to policies that would address other threats like public health threats and infrastructure threats that are actually far greater um, in some cases than the threat of terror attacks, although that's increasingly less so in West Africa as the as the conflict gains speed. But the point is that there are a lot of other ways to address uh, the problem of terror attacks, and they're far more effective. The studies show that, you know, in only 7% of cases historically has a military approach actually resolved the problem of terror attacks. In these other approaches are far more effective, including addressing the, the grievances that drive people to militant movements as legitimate political grievances, because that's what they are. People are turning to these Islamist militant movements out of frustration and desperation, poverty, corruption, government authoritarianism, those are what's driving people and what to these movements and what what are driving all of this anger. Also a lot of neo, you know, a lot of um sentiment against colonialism. That's a huge dynamic in what's going on uh on the region on the ground. Um so there are all these other alternatives and I I want to tell you just a couple stories. Um there are, you know, both in Burkina Faso and in Niger, what was remarkable to me was, you know, there's so many local kind of ground up initiatives people are taking on to promote peace. A lot of conflict resolution, kind of neighbor to neighbor, really small scale, municipal level negotiations, for example, with with these militant groups um, that actually have worked. They have like a track record of success in, you know, in helping prevent local level violence. They haven't been adopted at the federal level. Um, but, but there was the story, for example, of in Niger, a local group of citizens decided to negotiate with this uh, Islamist group for the release of an American hostage. She was an elderly nun who had been taken and held in Niger for many, many months. And um, the, they were successful. They, the, in a kind of show of goodwill, the, the you know, militant, the, the kind of local youth who were involved in the militant groups no longer wanted to fight. They handed over, the, over this hostage. Um, and this was a real success. The person that we spoke to, a, a citizen who was 
largely responsible for brokering this negotiation was like, look, you know, these, this conflict resolution stuff, this is what works. This is what can actually change this, this um, spiraling situation. And what happened? The government, the, the, in this case, the Nigerian government with the assistance of U.S. Uh, intelligence went in and bombed the very same people who had handed over this hostage as a show of goodwill, right? So this is what a war mentality does. It uses um, a moment of peace uh, negotiation as, a, as an opportunity for security intelligence instead of kind of taking this radical shift in the paradigm and saying, look, we could be doing this entirely differently and entirely more effectively if we took a different tack. All right. Well, that, yeah, that's discouraging to hear that that was the the choice that the, the government made uh, in response to that. Um, and, well, and so you were just in Niger earlier this year. Um, of course, I mean, Niger is not what's known to most Americans, I imagine, in, in terms of I mean, U.S. policy or U.S. involvement. Uh, but it was where four U.S. troops were killed in 2017, participating in a mission alongside local forces. And it's also home, as you mentioned earlier, to the largest U.S. drone base in Africa. Um, so uh, what is the situation there now and what has been the role of U.S. military assistance and involvement in that country? The U.S. sees Niger as uh, one of the last holdouts that's providing stabi- stability in an increasingly chaotic region. Um, the U.S. has a really... Uh, significant troop presence there. Um, and it's not necessarily in troops that are permanently stationed. The, the, the kind of official numbers, um, of, I think it's something like 700 belie the fact that there are all kinds of trainers who go in and out, lots of, um, of temporary operations that don't count as a kind of permanent presence, right? But when I was in Niamey, I was really, astounded to see uh, how many, how much U.S. military presence there was in the capital. Um, And I went to Agadez, as I said, where um, the U.S. uh, has this massive drone base in uh, in the desert, which it spends 20 to 30 million dollars a year in just to maintain. And there are drones flying out every day, often twice a day, um, doing reconnaissance. So it's intelligence, uh, and reconnaissance missions in support of, uh, counterterrorism operations, not just in Niger, but the whole surrounding region, Libya, Chad, Cameroon, Nigeria, you know, Algeria, all of the, the kind of, it's, it's all the Sahara desert band. Um, and, and these borders, I mean, think about these massive, countries and these very porous borders, right? So these militant groups are traveling in between all these countries, um, oftentimes in the desert. Um, So one of the big takeaways of my trip was that, you know, Niger is this supposed, you know, stable security partner in the region. Um, And the, you know, the U.S. likes to kind of tout its role in helping Niger be so stable. Um, but it's not just the U.S. There are, first of all, uh, lots of other countries like Germany, Italy, Canada, um, that are involved in security assistance. And they all kind of like to claim Niger as their success story of, um, you know, it's because of, of secure, their security assistance that, that there is more stability. 
what I saw was that the, you know, what explains the stability is not any kind of foreign assistance. I mean, I think that's so often what the disc, the Western discourses, um, and foreign discourses, it's not just Western, it's, you know, Russian, Chinese at this point too. overlook is, is local agency, right? For lack of a better way of saying it, these are, you know, local governments who are making policy choices and who are using um, foreign aid to their advantage in whatever way they see fit, right? And so, you know, it's, I think it's really wrong to speak of a security vacuum the way so often we hear when actually it it's actually a local government, which for better or worse is um, implementing its own measures. And, um, and that's exactly what the Nigerian government is doing. And they are using tools that are very far from democratic to do so. So one example, they, they're implementing what they call zones of emergency, states of emergency or zones of emergency um, in several regions of the country, which have seen the most violence. And in those places, they're implementing measures like curfews, bans on using riding motorcycles, bans on certain kinds of livelihood production like fishing. And uh, the army basically has permission to shoot when it sees someone riding a motorcycle because that person is automatically suspect as a terrorist. So this is a so-called democratic country that the U.S. for the U.S. is a stable, it's best security partner in the region. Um, and yet they're implementing these incredibly authoritarian measures and you know, I think we need to be really careful of the kinds of discourses that say that, it, oh, it's, you know, it's all due to U.S. security assistance. I mean, I think, I think, yes, the Nigerian government is using U.S. security assistance to its own ends. And yes, that has, you know, there, there's a whole lot of, of also geopolitical reasons for Niger to be more stable. For example, the militant groups um, in Mali have have seen the efficacy of keeping Niger stable in order to maintain a trafficking corridor for you know weapons and drugs and that kind of thing. So there's all these kinds of local dynamics, and it's a vast um, you know error and oversimplification to overstate the role of um, U.S. U.S. assistance in this mix. Thanks for joining us, uh, Stephanie. It's great to to see you again, and thank you for all of your your hard work. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, about Chad, but just like Chad, it, you know, as part of the the bigger picture. I know um, that I believe that France had left Chad and its its uh, counterterrorism program there. Um, basically, Chad was was happy to let you know France go. Now there's a power vacuum, so to speak, or a security vacuum, and there's some amount of pressure for the Biden administration to act. Um, but then you have um, the Wagner Group, which is being accused uh, of coming into to, to, to power vacuums like that and being hired by um, corrupt leadership and doing the work that some in the West believe that the U.S. and and other European countries should should be doing. Are you surprised? I guess first of all, are, are you know should uh, should the U.S. you know go back into certain places after it's left, or there's there's any um, some security vacuums um, popping up? And and B, what do you think of the Wagner Group going in and being hired by these African uh, countries? 
to deal with their own security issues? Is that a an outgrowth of the failures of the West and its counterterrorism uh, programs? Is it ultimately going to, to make the situation worse when you have hired guns coming in who, who might be even less interested in uh, establishing some sort of peace or democratic foothold um, in these places? Yeah, the, the, there's no question. The Wagner Group is that they're, they're doing horrible things uh, in this region. That there's no question. There's they've been accused of mass killings, um, you know, sexual abuses, and you know, human rights abuses in all the countries where they have a presence. Notably, the CAR, um, Mali. Uh, but increasingly in other countries. And the Discord leaks this week have, um, the Washington Post had a really um, fascinating story that mapped out all of the countries where the Wagner Group has been making inroads. Um, and, you know, again, I think I think what the, the, and we saw in the Discord leaks, we saw U.S. official discourses about the Wagner Group is exactly this, that they're taking advantage of power vacuums that the U.S. that have been created by the departure of France and the departure of the United States. And that, you know, I think, I think we need to be wary of that frame that portrays this as a result of a power vacuum, because it essentially then justifies the U.S. stepping in instead of the Wagner Group. Now, I don't think that's why the Wagner Group has um, has arisen. You know, I, I think I think that there are, frankly, a lot of economic interests in you know why any foreign player is involved in the region. The Wagner Group, we've we've we're seeing them use these security partnerships with local governments to gain access to natural resources. Um, we we have seen China do some very similar things over the years since you know the same time period the US has been waging this global war on terror in Africa and other parts of the world. Um, China has been building infrastructure in in Africa. Um, there's been some real, this is a little bit of an aside, but there's been some really interesting research um, by the Foreign Policy Research Institute that shows um, that, you know, there's all kinds of problems with with Chinese assistance um, in the region. They're creating kind of um, debt. They're, they're using this for profit, et cetera. However, the research shows that this has been actually far more effective in garnering political alignment for China then has U.S. security assistance. So just as Chinese foreign direct uh, investment has gone up, the researchers tracked basically political alignment in Africa with China, like along with foreign direct investment. And on the flip side, U.S. security assistance has gone up and political alignment with the United States and Africa has gone down. So so you can really see the way that these things uh, map out. The Wagner Group, like, um, you know, and and I should say, France, too, and the United States it were democratic countries 
But we we also have economic interests in the region. Um, and, you know, when I did interviews at AFRICOM, officials there are very aware of the need to protect stability in the region because of U.S. economic interests in the region. This is what local people say, by the way. When you talk to local people about why all these foreign militaries and foreign groups like the Wagner Group and the U.S. and others, it's all a continuum for them of foreigners who are interested in exploiting the region's resources, which are which are rich, right? There, there's gold. There's lots of other uh, minerals. They're not wrong, <laughs> you know. It's it's a, it's an interesting uh, dynamic. So basically, the Wagner Group is going in, has these economic interests. Um, these authoritarian governments are contracting the Wagner Group to keep them in power because there's all this kind of unrest. The Wagner Group is exploiting these anti-French sentiments, um, which are very real. I really think that can't be emphasized enough is this um, kind of coming to terms with a legacy of colonialism and a lot of anger about that and rightful anger, right? It, it's, it's, it was wrong <laughs> to be colonized and people are really wrestling with what that means and, and, and super angry. They, they want the French out because the French has been exploiting them for, for decades. And, um, you know, I think, but I think to see this as, you know, the U.S. should step in because otherwise the Wagner group will step in and here's a power vacuum. This, this re-entrenches Cold War logics that suggests that this is a military battlefield and, and what's appropriate is great power competition and the U.S. should step in and elbow out the Wagner group and Russia and China. The, the point I think is that the solutions have to be found in non-militarized measures. That's the only place where the solutions can be. Um, so whether it's the Wagner group or any other, I think we need to reframe the questions that are being asked and say, let's not talk about a power vacuum. Let's talk about what can be done to address, really address the conflict and address the root causes of what's driving people to violence. Well, to that, and I want to ask one more question because I know we're running out of time, but I'm just curious to, to see what you have to say about this. So we recently had a presentation by uh, the Vision of Humanity, uh, which does a global terrorism index every year. And uh, I noted that in the top 10 countries for terrorism in 2022, um, seven were countries that currently or recently had some sort of U.S. military present or involvement, including Iraq, Burkina Faso, Niger, Somalia, Afghanistan, Mali, and Syria. And so, and, and what the, the, the index does is it measures it by the number of terrorist incidents in those countries over the, the last year. And these countries were all, um, mo most of them were all in ascendance, like they had increased over the years. Um, and, and, and comparably, in the Middle East, a lot of the terrorism instances have, have gone down since the U.S. has sort of like sort of drifted or at least taken a step back from that region. Do you, am I reading too much into this? Because I would think that these countries would have wonderful records if, if the United States was, um, so involved and pouring so much money into these countries vis-a-vis -vis, uh, military security assistance, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think the CIA coined the term blowback, but it's an, it's an appropriate term. I think it captures the dynamics of this well in the sense that 
what fuels a lot of the violence, what fuels recruitment to these groups is, is government violence. And so people want to join these groups to retaliate against that because we saw just um, just recently, uh, this week, I want to say, Burkina Faso's security forces killed 60 civilians in the north of Burkina Faso. It was accused, the country's security forces um, extrajudicially killed um, seven children recently um, in documented reports. Um, there was, um, you know, I, I heard stories in Burkina Faso of people who um, were so enraged that the government forces killed their father that they then you know, a, a highly educated young person um, went and bought a motorcycle so they could, you know, join this, the, the militant movement, you know, in retaliation. So there's a lot of, um, I think, violence begetting violence and, and these movements getting fueled by government repression that is intensified by U.S. assistance. So that's, that's really where the cycle is perpetuated. The U.S. is just sending, you know, millions in, in, in funding and equipment. And for the U.S., it's a drop in the bucket. The Pentagon bus budget is so massive that what it sends annually to Niger, for example, is very little. Uh, in comparison to the overall budget. And yet for a country like that, it's very significant. These resources are, are very, they, so they really act to to bolster these authoritarian regimes in a very strong way. Right. And, yeah, unfortunately, that, that seems to be the, the pattern that we see again and again with these policies. Uh, so, uh, I'm afraid we're out of time, but I want to thank you again, uh, Stephanie Savelle uh, from the Cost of War Project. Uh, we really enjoyed talking to you and uh, look forward to having you back on the show. Thanks so much. Thanks for, so much for, for paying attention to what's going on in the region. It's so important that we in the U.S. understand a little bit more about what's going on. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.